1930, John Maynard Keynes looked a century into the future and saw a time when no one would need to work more than a few hours per week in order for society to sustain itself comfortably. He thought humanity had to start preparing for an era of almost limited leisure. Since then, many have made similar predictions. In 2013, an academic paper made headlines when it estimated that almost half the jobs in the U.S. are at a high risk of being automated, quote, within a decade or two. Well, a decade has passed, during which a global pandemic radically changed the working habits of many, but the projected massive disruption in the labor markets has yet to materialize. The recent release of ChatGPT and its slew of competitors has raised this specter of a workless future once again. Perhaps this is the decade when many of us lose our jobs. If this happens, we'll have to see whether too much leisure time is our biggest problem. Right now, however, our tech-based labor anxieties seem to be of a different kind. Rather than increasing our freedom, many workplace technologies have been used to increase employers' ability to monitor their employees. In a sense, this is a continuation of an old trend. Punch clocks have been recording employees' arrival and departure times for over a century. Workplace cameras have been around for decades. And when email came to the little computers we all carry with us yet still anachronistically called phones, employers' grips on their employees' lives has intensified even more. But new technologies today go far beyond that. Employers don't just know when employees arrive at work and when they leave. They don't just have the ability to watch their employees. They now have the ability to know what employees are doing at every moment of their working day, sometimes down to the second. Which software they use and for how long, precisely how much it takes them to complete a task, even the number of computer strokes they manage per minute. When an employee's step away from their computer, the monitoring just continues. Wearable devices can now track how much employees interact with each other, the length and frequency of their bathroom breaks, and much else. Valeria De Stefano is with us today to talk about these developments. Valeria joined Osgood Hall Law School a couple of years ago, where he's teaching and research focus on labor and employment law. He has written extensively on the impact of new technologies on the workplace and the legal responses needed to deal with them. One of these writings is a book he co-authored with Antonio Aloisi, published in 2022 and entitled Your Boss is an Algorithm, Artificial Intelligence, Platform Work, and Labor. It is an eye-opening exploration of the ways technology has been changing our, that is, your, workplace, whether it is located in an ex-urban gigantic warehouse or a fancy downtown office. In the time we have with Valeria, we will discuss some of the many issues considered in his new book. Hi, everyone. Today we're having with us our uh, colleague at Osgood Hall Law School, Valeria De Stefano, uh, who joined us uh, at Osgood in the middle of the pandemic. And um, the book that we're going to talk about actually has something to say about the pandemic. So, so uh, it will probably come up today. And we are going to talk about his book, Your Boss is an Algorithm, Artificial Intelligence, Platform Work and Labor. And so one thing that I think the book, uh, the title of the book is, is quite helpful about is sort of the two main themes of the book. Uh, which is one is the t- technological change that we're seeing all around us and is keep keeps uh, 
uh, moving, uh, and we may get to sort of development since the book has been published later. And on the other hand, or the other side of it, is the impact that it has on labor and labor law. So uh, we're going to hopefully get to talk about both. So the first thing that we typically do in this uh, podcast is ask our uh, book authors to say a little bit about the background of the book, so how it came about, and maybe a a short two-minute summary of of the main themes that you were trying to get out in this book. Well, first of all, thanks a lot for for having me, uh, Richard and Dan. It's a a big pleasure. Um, So, the objective of this book that I co-authored with my uh, colleague Antonio Loisi, who is based at the uh, ELO School in Madrid, uh, was to convey to a broader public the gist of our research in the last few years. So the book as a, was long in the making in the sense that um, an, edu- a, a, an Italian edition of the book uh, appeared in Italy in um, October 2020. Uh, So we basically wrote the book, uh, we started writing the book before the pandemic hit, and then we were in the middle of the the first wave of the pandemic when we were uh, completing the book. And uh, the idea with Antonio was to try and uh explain to a broader public and this is why in italy in particular we chose uh, a non-academic publisher the book is uh was designed for a general audience and published by a general audience um very well-known italian publisher la terza and uh our our objective was to say well we are discussing these themes uh with our colleagues with people that understand about work and labor, or they are more of technology experts, but more or less, we are always uh, among uh, academics, policymakers, people in, I don't know, unions, employer associations. So it's all people that have a direct grasp of the phenomenon. But we think that the general public has also an interest in knowing the some of the issues of uh, that the, the we uh, deal with in our in our academic research, and so instead of writing a classic academic monograph, we came up with uh, with this book, which is much broadly uh, much more broadly accessible. Uh, it is still based on all our research, so uh, it is uh, academically sound. And actually, the English version, uh, when we updated it, we, we, we published with Art, which is more traditionally uh, an academic publisher. But still, the idea was to try and make accessible our research around the issue of platform work, so work for companies such as Uber, uh, DoorDash, uh, also uh, platforms that offer cleaning services uh, and uh, online work platforms such as the Amazon Mechanical Turk and other uh, micro work or generally online work platforms. So this is one of the prongs of the book. The other prong um, is to explain how some of the management practices that spread with platform work, uh, including control and direction of people through algorithmic 
management and forms of AI-based tools uh, are spreading in our society and uh, are actually now affecting uh, a much broader part of the workforce and are basically seeping into every workplace. So uh, if we look at the news today, uh, we see how uh, often is the case that the issue of work surveillance through algorithmic management and through remote work uh, um, proctoring so uh, software is spreading throughout the labor market. And this is another big part of, of the book. What it is that is happening with technology and work what are the trends, what are the opportunities, but also what are the risks and challenges that all these developments bring forward and what can we do about it? Great. So um, so let me start with, with the latter uh, point about uh, sort of surveillance at work. And so I'll I'll ask so so you are in your your answer just now you 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 spoke of the sort of the opportunities with surveillance and and so I have a, a couple of sort of real questions about this so first we all know that you know it may sound sinister to say this but but that surveillance or or the ubiquity of of cameras has has had some in some contexts has had good benefits so it it, it may have been able to catch police officers who are abusing their roles and all kinds of uh, crimes that are happening and in the past might have not been uh, able to be uh, detected. And so the question is, uh, so one question is sort of how, how do we uh, separate the good from 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 the bad. So so, um, you know, George Floyd, uh, his murder would, would have almost certainly would not have been nothing would have been done about this had there not had it not been caught on camera we we know that police officer would have said he resisted arrest and there and so on so so one thing is 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 sort of is is about that and and the second question that that is is this so so you know employers monitoring their employees is is not a new thing right they've they've always done this so they might come to you and say the only thing is that is now it's done better and better means capturing those who shirk work, right? Those who, who sort of slack off, those who don't do the work. So wh why, why would you want <laughs> to support them? So I'm not saying this as, as someone who necessarily accepts these, but, but sort of I imagine that these are, these are the kinds of responses that you've heard in the past. So I wonder what, what you think about these, these challenges. Well, so this is, um, these are excellent questions. And um, I think for the first question, it is, um, so the example of police brutality and video cameras uh, doesn't quite fit well and the reason is imagine if in our society video cameras were only in the hands of the government or the police okay so the technology that has uh, brought forward these uh, improvements if you want uh, is spread and we only know about that particular issues because other people had cameras, okay? We, it wasn't 
cameras that were controlled by the police or government or whatever. In the workplace, technology is owned and controlled and managed unilaterally by employers. So the technology only monitors most of the time only the things that employers have interest in monitoring. Now, we could use technology to try and better occupational health and safety by trying and detect what are the risks in a particular workplace and having alarms, uh, any sort of instrument that starts uh, beeping or uh, do whatever technology can do when there are sources of risk that are identified. And this is a part of the thing that you can do with technology, but this is not by no means is the prevalent thing that we are seeing. Um, I have nothing against using technology to better people's lives and also in a way to help increasing productivity. The problem is when a technology is used to monitor whatever you do second by second relentlessly. This drives a complete dehumanization of working people because it assumes that persons can focus on their job, can focus on the work for eight hours straight or more without ever getting distracted. And the technology helps you catching when they get distracted, when they are lost in a train of thought, or also when, I don't know, when they take a break and go to the bathroom or all the other things. So employers have always monitored people, but the kind of monitoring the technology allows has nothing to do with the traditional uh, supervision of human supervisor. Okay, It was never possible to have one supervisor attached on the back of a worker and basically uh, controlling every second of the worker's life. If this was the case, we would, first of all, it, it would be completely inefficient. But second, we will, we will not have told of this as a sane working environment. We would have equated this to some form of slavery in which they basically there is a supervisor that controls your every move and breath. This is something that technology allows, and this is something that we should stop technology to, to, to be able to do, because it is inhuman to have uh, a series of tools that track your every move, your every thought, your every moment of destruction. We are humans. We will never be able to work without that. And actually, the moment in which we are distracted are tendentially the moment in which we tend to be productive. We tend to think of new things. We tend to promote uh, new ideas. And if we lose that, and if we have this complete separation between execution and programming and management, this is basically Taylorism on steroids, and it's something that mm, it is not driving more efficiency. It is not more productive. And even if it was, I would argue, even if it was, we should not want it and we should ban it. I mean, I think we could all agree on that. I also, I mean, it was shocking to read, and I, 
I was aware of this, the, 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 the level of surveillance, especially in the gig economy, but not to the extent that you you relate in the book. And and I didn't realize, like, for instance, truckers, how how their lives are basically uh, completely examined by surveillance. Can I just ask you, I, I'm going to be the lighthearted questioner. Danny can be the more difficult one, but I, I'm. I have a colleague who's at a faculty, not our faculty, another faculty at York, who's so paranoid about York, our academic environment being surveilled. He doesn't even use their York's email. And I just wonder, are there other places that you're aware of like that, where we we don't we aren't aware that are being surveilled, but we are in 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 academia or in sort of law offices, let's say, or other white collar work? I know I know your book talks mainly about the gig economy, but I assumed you probably have some sense of that as well. Well, you know? well, a part of the book is about the gig economy, but uh, another part is much more uh, broadly. And we discuss examples that have to do with law firms and white collar occupation in general. So all these instruments are now uh, embedded in most workplaces. The technology that allows you to monitor people second by second is ingrained and we should not think of some exotic software we have never heard of teams allows second by second monitoring if it's switched on outlook uh, flags when you are uh, present or when you are uh, absent when you are uh, like with the yellow status when you are with the blue with the green status so all of these things can compose a profile that can gets tracked by managers and employers. Um, so no occupation is basically um, sheltered against these risks. The, the, the kind of technology that then we see that are more uh, targeted uh, surveillance, they can count the keystrokes that you give in a certain moment of time, or they can record everything that goes on on your screen without you knowing that, or they can use the camera to catch pictures of you uh, or use the mic to see whether you are uh, at your workstation or not when you're working remotely. Uh, all of these things are present and, uh, and they are spreading more and more. But we should not be fooled. It's not just because we don't have dedicated software that surveil what we are doing. And in some cases, if we use any technology that the employer has provide, provided, we, we will never be sure about it. But uh, even the most mundane software that we use can basically be um, weaponized, if you want, uh, in this surveillance um, trend that uh, us absolutely no reason to be other than the fact that technology allows it, which is another problem we address with the book, the question of techno-determinism. These things are possible, thus we should do them, which, of course, is a very unsophisticated way of looking at tools, technology, technologies, but when it comes to somehow monitoring people is the first thing that comes to mind. Like, these things are there, so why don't we use them? So I want to follow up on that. So that's interesting because you said, um, and I'm I'm quite convinced by this that it's actually inefficient. So so I can 
definitely see how um, if I were to be monitored constantly, it would actually be on my mind in a manner that would be distracting rather than helpful for my work. And I'm reminded by a, I think it was a New York Times article from, from about a year ago uh, that did exactly that. So, so it kind of monitored you while you were reading it um, to see, for example, to give you a report on how fast you're reading it. And, and that by itself could s slow you down because instead of just reading it, you're constantly are thinking, oh, I'm reading it, but also how fast am I reading it or something like this. And so the question, and, and so this may be related to this techno-determinism that um, you might think that maybe initially companies would adopt this, but then they will discover that it's detrimental, even from you know their sort of bottom line perspective of increasing productivity or profit or revenue or whatever you want, that it's actually not good for them. So, so, so maybe they will, it, it sort of will disappear on its own. <laughs> so, so I, I'm sure you say it won't. And I, and this is, this is too optimistic a story, but, but, but then I'm, I'm kind of, so, so why won't it disappear on its own? Well, so the thing is, uh, first of all, again, there's, um, already some analysis that show that when you introduce this form of surveillance, people spend a lot of time trying to game the surveillance, trying to game the system. Uh, so there's people that bought, I don't know, things that move their mouses so they they are constantly show, uh, shown to be active, okay? Or uh, giving the signal that some keystrokes are uh, pushed or so uh, it's already incredible how many resources and time we are spending to try and game completely idiotic systems so this is already a, a, a huge loss of time and, and you can productivity. put the cat on the keyboard and walk it around it. exactly i mean you have to come up with all these uh these uh, uh these things uh or you have constantly in the mind that you are reading not too fast and therefore you are reading slower because you are distracted by this i mean um these are all things that uh we know are true on top of that uh there's the question of more general societal loss the kind of stress that people develop when they know they are subject to all of this surveillance, uh, it generates psychosocial risk for people that then needs to be taken care of. Uh, and maybe people have to go uh, to the analysts or they have to start taking pills or whatever. It's all adding up on detrimental uh, effects that in most cases represent just negative externalities that have no other benefit for society uh, rather than basically increasing the bottom line of um, the companies that sell or pro provide this software. Why don't I think that these things are going to go away for um, just by themselves? Uh, because uh, there may be the case for the tech companies, okay? The, the tech companies that have their own proprietary system may understand what's going on, may try and tweak it, may release new versions, may withdraw older versions. 
the problem is that most of the employers in our society have no, absolutely no idea what this technology is about and what and how it how does it work. And once you have spent a ton of money to implement the technology, there is no way you're going to go back unless you admit that you wasted a lot of money. So these things will tend to stick, okay? And it will never be the case, there will be never the case that a manager raises the hand and say, this absolutely makes no sense. I'm not going to go with the decision that is suggested by the system, which, by the way, we have bought or uh, leased for a huge lot of money. And therefore, I'm basically um, disregarding the system that we have spent all these monies for, and I'm going to go back to the old system. This is not going to happen. This is why I think these systems will will stick. And even if in five or 10 years' time, everybody will realize that these systems are just garbage, which we don't have an evidence that is going to happen because some of the systems we are talking about now were introduced in the aftermath of the financial crisis in 2008, and they have just stayed around. Uh, sometimes people realize that they basically are just snake oil, and then they just get rebranded with new names and re-proposed to other audiences, right? So I have absolutely no um, hope that this thing is going to go away in itself, for itself. Uh, we need to do something about it to go to, to, for it to go away. And before we ask you specifically how you what you think will help it go away, I, the other thing I wanted to just ask you related to the the idea that it won't go away is there are millions of people who seem to suggest that you know the more technology the better. And I I I just had an article that I read recently that I thought I'd put to you, and I went because you seem to have to push against this as well. Is that you know our colleagues, U of T law profs on how AI will make the law radically better about, you know, the idea that AI in law firms will just be a huge boost. And that's just a tiny, tiny story, but that there are millions of people, not just the, the, the managers and the bosses in the workplace, but millions of people who think the more technology, the better. And so I think you're, you're having to push against that as well, I, I assume. Well, yeah, I mean, again, uh, I'm not against technology in itself at all, okay? I am against thinking of technology in a form of magical thinking, that technology per se is a thing that will solve our problems just because something new is possible. If something new is possible, it is probably the case that also something bad that is new is possible, or the new tools recreate or reverberate in the future things that were detrimental in the past. And this is a big risk, for instance, with machine learning systems that have to work and be trained on huge data sets uh, that reflect the practices, the data of a biased society and tend to reverberate those biases in the future. For instance, you can have software that scans the curriculum of people uh, that need to be recruited. 
Um, so you basically want to have a job interview, you have to submit the CV to an automatic system, and only the people that are selected by this automatic system gets to the next phase. Now, when some companies have done that, they realized that the system was only hiring white people, in white men in their prime age. Why was that? Because in the past, this was the only people that got hired, and the system replicated that for the future. Now, when the, the engineers of this tech company uh, understood that, they went back to the machine and tried to tweak it by eliminating this. So basically they asked, they, they tweaked the algorithm to instruct them not to look at race or gender. What the algorithm did was to find proxies for, for race and gender, okay? Instead of saying people uh, that are called uh, Mary instead and John, uh, or they have um, certain names compared to other names, the, the algorithm started looking at the uh, zip codes, or they started looking at what kind of uh, sport activities you did in your youth. And so they, they started to basically discriminate again using proxies. So all of these tend to basically project in the future things that we want to get rid. And while we do that, we basically cover this, we, we caught this in this objective, neutral, technological facade. So like you can say, well, it's numbers, it's algorithms, they can't discriminate. A machine is better than a human because it can't discriminate. A machine doesn't nothing, doesn't anything, if you aren't, haven't instructed them to do something and told them what to do and how to do it. And while you do that, the risk of reincorporating all these biases is always present. When it comes to law firm, uh, the risk I see is uh, not only that people will start to outsource creative thinking to that technology, which basically will mean that every new ideas will be vetted against the machines. And the machines, again, only reflect what happened in the past. Machines cannot elaborate new ideas. They can't. And so the risk is that, first of all, you flatten your ideas on a technology that is stuck in the past. Second, when it comes to the, the law profession, but we can think of it uh, also for many other professions, some of the things that are now outsourced to technology uh, in law firms are things that we would always consider boring and in a way got commoditized a lot time a long time ago. Uh, basic legal research, uh, reading drafts of contracts to see what's wrong with the draft, things like this. Now, it is true that it's much less boring to outsource this to the computers, but it's also true that to learn the profession, you have to start by doing basic things. And if people are not hired to do those things, we lose opportunities for paid training in the profession. We lose the entry point of the career in which someone gets in a law firm and starts do, doing basic things uh, before moving to more advanced things. So we risk basically cutting dramatically the training time 
that allows people to learn the job, to learn the trade, and then progress. And we basically are going to ask people that enter the profession to be already middle-level associates, which is something that is completely impossible because you can't start a job as if you were in the middle of a career, right? So there's also this that, that need to be take, needs to be taken into account when it comes to the impact on, on jobs. Uh, most of it, though, I think what's worrying is outsourcing our critical thinking to machines that are not trained to do that. Okay, so I, I, uh, so, so we're kind of you, you, you spoke in your last answer about the the past and, um, and that machines are kind of stuck in the past. So, so maybe it's it's uh, time for us in our questions to move towards the the recent past and the present and then the future. So, so one uh, aspect and you mentioned this in your answer to your first question is the the. Uh, one aspect of our lives that, in some respects, is almost forgotten now, but but is 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 looming large, and, and this is the pandemic. So, so in one sense, uh, I can say personally, it the the pandemic almost feels like a distant uh, memory. But but in in your book, which as you said was written while it was uh, the lockdowns were still happening, there was the sense that the pandemic pushed. And, and accelerated many of the changes that were happening. And, and so in some respects, as I said, in our daily lives, maybe we can feel like, okay, this was a, an unpleasant uh, period, but we're back to what, what it was before. But I, I wonder, and, and in line with some of the answers to previous questions, did some of the changes that were brought about by the pandemic are kind of we're stuck with them now, and and because of this technological determinism, it's difficult to to get rid of them, or, or, or and 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 we need maybe governmental action to get rid of them. So the point is, we, well, in the book we discuss broadly what um, some of the uh, some of the implications of, on, of the pandemic on, on on work there was of course the increased stress on what we during the lockdown started to call essential workers and that at some point started to include basically everyone that had to sh to, to busy basically be present physically to do the job and started to include people like riding food around uh, the town, trackers, et cetera, et cetera, something that we normally don't associate to essential uh, activities. Uh, but then it, it, it was clear that also them were essential to have our societies functioning while we were, uh, the rest of us was in lockdown. And uh, one of the things that we, examining was that in many places since these people are misclassified as independent contractors uh, they were not covered by existing protection and even the emergency protection that were taken in a, in a number of countries did not include some gig workers because they were caught in between being not being an employees and not being properly enterprises so they basically fall through the cracks of additional protection of uh, extended during the pandemic in many cases. Uh, when it comes to the surveillance side, uh, we had a bunch, I mean, a lot of people that were asked uh, or basically they were forced to stay 
working from home overnight. And the culture, the managerial culture in many of our societies, including the Canadian one, is still pre- very much based on, or was very much based on uh, sort of FaceTime. I need to check what you're doing. I need to see you because otherwise I'm assuming you're going to cheat. You're going to slack off. Now, one of the evidence that this isn't true is that during the pandemic, especially in the first couple of weeks of the lockdowns, the reporting lines were basically completely disrupted, but the company businesses kept on going on. People kept on working, even without the inputs of the managers in most of the cases, um, because people in general don't cheat people in general do their job and so the idea that from one day to the next we have to spend huge amounts of money resources and create all of these risks to find isolate and sanction some few people that might lack off is completely preposterous there is this uh irrational idea that people will not work unless you are always on the back. And uh, this had the, rep- the, the effect, this idea that uh, managers that were not used to have a workforce that would basically be judged on the outputs of what they produce, but more on the process, on the ability to check that you are there, you are not cheating. They introduced, uh, they went in a, panic buying modes for these surveillance technologies, okay? So all of these technologies that was already present in the labor market, but was uh, in a way, in most of the cases, a niche application became overnight commonplace because the managerial culture was not used not to have people always under their eye. And this is why during the pandemic, we saw this technology skyrocketing and it's now commonplace that people have uh, introduced these things in the laptop of workers or in the smartphone of workers, things that only three years ago we will think completely useless. And now the point is we will think that would be completely useless because people will show up at the office. Yes, a lot of people went to the office, but again, even in the offices, it was never the case that the supervisor checked what you were doing second by second while you were at your desk. So again, it's so irrational thinking uh, that during the first stages of the lockdown, managers thought we had to control what people are doing, otherwise they are not going to work, which was not true. Uh, in, in, in practice. And now we we are stuck with all of this uh, um, tech and resources because we paid for them, because we already invested a lot of time, money to uh, install them uh, and also to understand how to use them. So again, they are there and they're going to stuck around until something against it uh, is done. So... Uh... Can I ask you? And you you talk about this in the book. Why don't you just share with with us some of the some of the possible solutions here? Then, because your your view of worker as a workers as being very positive, your view of their surveillance being very negative. What uh, what can be done here? 
So in my opinion, legally, the first thing that we have to do is to is to try and have a, a change in the culture and thinking of the policymakers. They have to understand that technology is a tool to serve us and we are not tools to serve technology and that not every technology that is available should be used. Okay, 20, 25, 30 years ago, the cost of doing, of um, having people subject to the truth machine uh, was relatively low and people could be subject to this in mass and policymakers decided that this wasn't going to be the case, that you should not use truth machines on people unless they work for the secret service. Okay. The technology was there. The fact that it was there and it was accessible was not a good reason to allow it. I ask for the same kind of rational thinking around technology. Unfortunately, in the last 30 years, we basically uh, went into this mood that every new addition, every new innovation should be allowed and is positive. And no matter what the consequences are, we will be always worse off if we didn't allow the technology to operate. We need to get out of that magical thinking around technology. Technology is there to help us. And if it does more pros, more cons than pros, we should ban it. We should not allow it to, to, to be in place. For instance, technologies that allow people to monitor emotional or mental states of persons in general and workers in particular, and there are technologies that are used during interviews, for instance, that try and detect your emotion during a job interview by looking at your face and collecting data points on uh, how do you smile, how fast you move your eyelids, which, by the way, no serious uh, neuroscientist will, will vouch for it. They, they, it's for sure snake oil, but it's still used uh, and it's becoming a commonplace in job interviews. These things should be just a right band. And mental and, mental and emotional surveillance is just negative. Nothing good can come of it. It should be banned. It should be banned by the lawmakers. On top of that, I in the book and the book was written uh, also with a European audience in mind. So there, the rate of uh, union presence in the workplace is much higher than in North America and especially in the private sector. So we argue that in most of workplaces, the introduction and use of this technology should be negotiated with the union. Uh, you cannot introduce it unless you have an agreement with the union that tells you what you can do, what you can't, uh, with a legislative framework that basically fixes the, the minimum requirements. So this is what we would we proposed uh, in the European context, when again, the rate of unionization or the penetration of union in workplaces is much higher than in North America. In North America, you cannot, I mean, of course, in unionized workplaces, this should happen. And in our opinion, it can happen. Um, but on top of that, you have to supplement it with the intervention of public bodies that vet 
in advance of the introduction of the system, whether the systems are desirable, are transparent enough, are non-discriminatory. And in any case, if you need this level of invasiveness, if this level of invasiveness is strictly essential for your workplace to operate, and if it is not, the bar and the bar should be very high on that, a certain te surveillance technology should not be allowed in workplaces. So let me uh, continue on sort of the focus on, on work and now switch a little bit to the question of labor law. And so you, um, so in, in the book, you're discussing it at, at length, uh, a distinction that's in, it's an old one between uh, an employee, be, between two kinds of worker. One is an employee and another is the independent contractor. And you also talk about the fact that in some jurisdictions uh, in the past, there have been attempts to, or there have been sort of midway categories. In Canada, there is the suggestion of a dependent contractor that goes back to as far as I know, at least, an article by Ar Harry Arthurs of Osgood, uh, and he had in mind back when he published this article on 65 people like truck drivers. And so, as I see it, you're kind of making two moves in the book. One is first to resist the temptation for a third category and just say only these two. And then at a second stage or second move, to also say, actually, all the benefits that we give or many of the benefits that we give to employees should also be extended to self-employed. So in a way, you want to not just not allow for a third category, but in the, in the end, eliminate even the, the, the two categories and just say, just have workers. So, mm -hmm. so, um, so to some extent, all this is, is true independently of technology, but I wonder... So where, where does all this relate to, to the discussion we've had so far? Uh, so now I'm kind of wanting to switch a little bit more to the, the, the labor law side of, of the book. Sure. So again, thanks for uh, these excellent questions. Um, so the distinction between employees and the self-employed uh, that dates back, uh, of course, uh, a long time. And so the employees are the ones that get normally protected by the law. The self-employed are the ones that are uh, assumed to be able to protect themselves in the market and don't need any legislative protection, particu any particular safeguard uh, compared to other contractual counterparts. Uh, when the distinction was conceived in this way, uh, the self-employed uh, were in effect, most of them were in effect able to protect themselves without the need of legislative intervention. The point was that uh, especially after the 70s, a much bigger number of people were clustered in these independent contractor categories. And basically a much higher number of people started to be excluded from labor protection without having the same kind of power that the traditional self-employed persons had. So if we, bought, if we go back to the idea behind the dependent contractor thing uh, that Ariartos came up with in Canada, and back then it was pioneering and, and an exceptionally uh, progressive idea, 
the idea was, well, we have these people and we cannot categorize them easily in uh, uh, between employees and dependent con uh, independent contractors. So let's have a gray area. Let's have a grade zone in which we are going to only offer some protection, but at least more people will have access to at least some protection. Now, back in those days, uh, this was a good idea. What happened though, and this uh, also happened in most of the other places that adopted this third category between independent contractors and the employees, was that many more people that would normally fall in the, in the employee's side of the binary distinction now fell in between and basically only were given a small number of protection. And whenever you had these three categories, uh, you still replicated the litigation around classification. Is this people an employee? Is it an independent contractor? Or maybe is it a dependent contractor? Whenever that happened, however, you need a litigation to even get to the dependent contractor category. So the dependent contractor category was not a panacea against, uh, against uh, litigation. And especially when it comes to platform work, whenever there are these intermediate categories, the platform do whatever they can to avoid these people falling into the dependent contractor category or, or, or of course, employment status. Now, uh, to the point that we had uh, to have a, um, a case before the uh, Labor Relations Board in Ontario to determine whether Fudora drivers, so people that drive food around town and with their bike, resembled more employees or independent contractors. Like people that just have a, a bike that, and drive food around town. The system is completely uh, broken if we need an earring and a decision and we don't know in advance that somebody who drives pizzas around town is more an employee than an independent contractor. You need to protect them without question. Okay. So the our... Um, our idea was we don't need this because whenever you have it, you start discussing incredible cases in which people that should be protected by all labor laws are somehow stuck in this limbo. I, I can give you another example. In Italy, people working in call center were for a long time categorized as dependent contractors. Okay, it doesn't make any sense at all to say that these people should not be protected by the entire panoply of labor protection. These are people working in call centers. Uh, they have nothing entrepreneurial about them. They, they can't, uh, they don't have a business. They can grow a business. They are just people working. So our, and this also, this other part was based on the work of uh, also other colleagues. The idea was, Employment and self-employment are categories that are not set in stone. They seem natural to us because we have always dealt with them. But no one says that they should be eternal. And uh, the idea was we should move, and again, following the theories of uh, other academics, to a protection that is universal and covers everyone that works personally. Everyone who is not operating a genuine business, and by genuine business, I don't mean you have a bike and you drive pizzas around town. Anyone who is not 
having a genuine business should be protected by the entire set of labor and employment protection. Uh, and instead of having this binary distinction that doesn't make sense anymore. Okay, we kept you for a long time. So so just one question. So we kind of touched on on the future of work a little bit. So so we'll, we'll, our last question will be about the future of your work. So so this book is out and and so what's what's the project that you're kind of working on or 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 planning to work on? Is it building on I, I imagine that it's in some respects building on on the past work. So so just sort of what's 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 next on your agenda? So uh, that's, that's a very good question, and I wish I had a better answer. But um, yes, what I'm working on uh, is to develop some of the themes that are already present in my past uh, research and concentrate more on the question of power in workplaces and in work relations in general. Why is it that employers have unilateral prerogatives of direction, control, and discipline in democratic societies. And to what extent those kind of disciplinary powers that originated at a day in which our societies were by no means democratic are still resisting today. Uh, technology has a role in it in the sense that, of course, technology enhances and augments these powers. But again, in my opinion, technology is only a plus on things that are already there, on trends that are already there and can already be questioned. Uh, but the, the more technology enhances these powers, the more is urgent to question the powers in the first place without being distracted by the tech. Great. Thank you. Uh, I'm sure we could discuss this for much longer. And, and I, I have notes for, for more questions, but I think uh, this is a great time to end. So this just sound, this fa sounds fascinating, and 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 maybe one day when there's another book, <laughs> we'll have you again. But until well, then, um, uh, thank you, thank you very yes. much. This was fascinating. Thank you, Valerio. Can I ask you a question that probably won't won't be on the podcast? But I was <laughs> sure. just curious. Anyway, when you're writing this book, did you have any any thought of ever? for a week or two, becoming an Uber driver or a Deliveroo person, just to see what it's actually like? Uh, well, I was a precarious worker in my past, so I don't think I needed any more precarious work experience <laughs> in my... Uh, uh, the, my point is that, uh, yes, if I went to become an Uber driver or a Fudora uh, rider, I could have seen more how the tech plays, but the, the pattern of precarity that these people experience are not new and they are, they are not separate from the, the, the problem of casualization and precarization that affects uh, societies more at large. And since I was already a precarious worker, I didn't feel I needed any more precarity in my life. <laughs> that was a good answer. Anyway, thanks. Thanks.